Welcome to The Mastering Show. This is the show where we talk about all aspects of mastering. I'm Steve Cherubino, just one of your hosts. Also joining me, my co-host, Ian Shepard. What's up, Ian? The sky. This is why we have Ian on the show. He's the man who brings the knowledge. Knowledgeable <laughs> in all things. <laughs> the sky, space, the universe, all that stuff. So how's how it going, you? man? No, I asked first. How are you? Oh, I'm doing... You know what? I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie just because I'm recording and supposed to be like all cheery and happy. I'm uh, I'm a little tired. I'm working a lot and uh, I'm a little bit run down. And yesterday I just I just friggin' pigged out on junk. And I've been really watching my weight. I lost 30 pounds in the last three months. But yesterday I just pigged out and I feel much better about that now. It's out of my system, literally. That's good. <laughs> Thank you. Anyway, so back to audio. What are we talking about today? Okay, so uh, you and I were brainstorming uh, topics for the podcast a few weeks ago, and I mentioned mastering for vinyl and my opinion of vinyl in general, and you said you thought people would like to hear that, and it's certainly a question I get asked a lot. Um, I do want to do an episode on that, but when I started thinking about what I was going to say, I realized that there was another episode we had to have before that. Um because otherwise I would end up doing half of the episode we're about to do in the later episode on vinyl. Does that make sense? Yes. <laughs> okay, so today, anybody who wants to know the answer to those questions, we will do those maybe not next week, but soon. So I will tell you about mastering for vinyl and what I think of vinyl and all the rest of it. Uh, there's a thing called HD vinyl that some of you may have come across. I don't know that much about it, but I can tell you what I think about what I know about it. And there's 4K um, vinyl now. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it kind of is. Anyway, I'm not going to get sidetracked. That's coming later. Um, but if you want to know the answers to that and you want to fully understand the depth of my answers to that question, you need to listen to this show first. Um, so this show, I thought we would talk about analog versus digital. Awesome. Uh, the topic and the gear. So what I want to start with is... What what do you think of when you think of analog versus digital? I think of synthesizers mainly and effects processors. I think of warm. I think of raw. I think of a little bit more in your face and, and present in analog and digital. I think mm -hmm. more like rough. Um, doesn't have as much character, put that way, or no character at all. And you got to add character digitally. Yeah, that's good. And that's what a lot of people will say. I mean, it's interesting that you jumped immediately to the, the types of synths, um, because in my mind, I immediately go to the methods of recording, you know, and the, you know, do you have a big analog console or do you work in the box? Um, I hate that phrase. I'll come back to that. But yeah, absolutely. You know, that kind of whether you've got, you know, real oscillators where you can grab hold of a, a button or a dial or a slider and change sounds and stuff with an analog synth is absolutely part of it the the warmth word keeps always comes up with discussions of analog versus digital so the thing that people ask me all the time is um well there's two things one is they say do i use analog gear or do i use digital gear and they ask me why um and the other comment the other misconception okay so let, let me ask you before i tell you anything <laughs> Yeah. Let me go for another question. Have you heard the analogy of um, people say, 
ask my opinion about higher bit depths, you know, 24-bit versus 16-bit and higher sample rates. Um, and they have this idea in their heads about why higher bit depths and higher sample rates sound better. And they explain it in terms of images. They, there's this analogy with looking at a digital image. Have you come across that? Not so much the analogy. Okay, so the analogy goes... Um, imagine your audio is like a picture, like a digital picture. Everybody knows that when you zoom up on a digital photograph, at some point you will start to see the pixels, mm -hmm. right? You'll start to see that it's blocky. Right. Um, and the higher uh, the megapixels of your camera, the longer it takes to get there, right? And the more detail. So with my first digital camera, I think it was two megapixels. Um, and basically you zoomed in up on, say it's a picture of you know, head and shoulders shot, if you zoomed up close enough to see my face, you would start to see some blockiness. Right. Whereas these days with, I mean, even something like a, a phone camera is probably eight megapixels. Um, you can probably zoom right up until you probably have to look at somebody's eye in a photograph, right. you know, before you start to see the pixels. Exactly. Same thing applies to digital audio. Uh, the, the more bits you use and the higher sample rate you have, the more information you have, so the higher quality the capture should be. That sound reasonable? Yes. Okay, but it's not. Uh -huh. It's tricked it's, me. I'm sorry. Um, it's, I don't want to say it's wrong, but it's very misleading. And the way that it's misleading, the problem is it's reinforced by our, our DAWs, right? The computer software that we have. Because most DAWs, if you zoom in on the waveform, like when you zoom in on a digital image, if you zoom in far enough, you can see the steps in right. the waveform, yeah? Yep. You can see the digital, you can see the values of the samples. Um, and that kind of reinforces in our head this idea that digital audio works like a digital photograph and that if you need more bits, more sample levels, more higher frequencies to capture the sound more accurately, it's misleading. Um, in fact, I'd go as far as to say it's wrong. Um, because that's not an actual picture of the audio waveform that we're seeing. It's a representation. It's a convenient way of thinking about the waveform. But actually, I mean, if you think about that kind of stair-step shape that you see when you zoom in on a waveform, that's showing the samples as this uh, block, right? They kind of, the samples are kind of like long, tall, thin rectangles lined up next to each other, going up in a step shape or down in a step shape. Yeah. Um, so they have a th they're quite thick. But actually, samples are instantaneous values. They're not blocks of data. They're points. Yeah, there's one sample there, one sample there, one sample there, one sample there. Right. So if you actually zoomed in on a waveform, a more accurate way of representing it would be dots. a line of spikes or, or dots representing the tops of the lines. That's right. And the, the really crucial point is that those are only the values inside the computer. That is how the information is stored in the computer, but you never hear the audio like that. When it gets played out through your sound card, through an audio interface, effectively, you draw a line through the dots. You draw a smooth curve. So anybody who's done a bit of math at school uh, will probably remember, you know, you, have a, you plot your points on a graph and then you have to try and draw a smooth curve through them. To figure out that the trend right um and exactly that happens when the audio is replayed on a digital to audio converter so there are no stair steps they digital to analog were, converter 
digital to analog converter. There were there were no stair steps in the first place because that's just the data in the computer. When it gets played back, it's a smooth curve. So adding extra samples in there doesn't make the curve any more or less smooth when you play it back. Um, increasing the sample rate so you have more of those samples can make the curve more detailed, but there is a limit to what we can hear, to what our ears can hear. Um, you know, there, there's actually no scientific evidence whatever that people can hear any higher than, say, 20 kilohertz. I mean, actually, probably people, most people can't hear much above 16 kilohertz. Um, certainly not when they get past the age of 18. And, you know, there's all kinds of wild theories about how people might hear the sound otherwise, but it's not backed up by the data. Nobody's consistently been able to show that anybody can hear these ultra-high frequencies. So having those ultra-high frequencies in your recorded sound doesn't have any benefit for the sound that you're hearing. Um, it's a bit like, uh, my favourite analogy of that is, you know, you could make a video camera that would record ultraviolet light. But it wouldn't look any different to you when you played it back right. because we can't see ultraviolet. Right. It would give you a suntan, <laughs> but it wouldn't look any different. Right. And the same thing is true of ultrasonic frequencies in digital audio. Now, so I should pause quickly um, because, well, you said yourself, you've heard, you think, differences when you've recorded at higher sample rates, yeah? Definitely. Well, there's definitely a difference. Okay. The... I guess the point I need to make there is that we have to distinguish between different and better. People test higher sample rates versus lower sample rates. So, you know, 96 kilohertz versus 48 kilohertz or whatever. Yeah. They hear a difference and they therefore assume that the higher sample rate is better. But it's not that simple. In fact, what you find is it's actually pretty hard to design a digital to audio converter that has equal performance at multiple sample rates. So you can optimize a converter for 44.1, uh -huh. you can optimize a converter for 48, you can optimize a converter for 96 or 192, but it's pretty hard to optimize, or it's much harder to optimize one for all of those sample frequencies. I see. And what you find when you test the really high-end converters is you find there is less difference between the sample rates than in the cheaper converters, right? They put more, they put more money into the engineering and the design and the components, and you hear less difference. Yes. Now, I have done some tests. It's been a, it's been a while. It's been five or six years since I did this test seriously. Um, but I did it on speakers that were worth, I don't know, ten thousand dollars at least. Um, a Pacific Microsonics HDCD converter, which was worth forty or fifty thousand dollars. Um, Studer tape deck. I don't know what those go for these days. Um, you know, beautiful mics, uh, a variety of different sources, and I ran 100% analog chain, um, perfectly level matched with a digital chain, so I could test this stuff out for myself. Yeah, I could hear a small difference between 48 kilohertz and 44.1 kilohertz, um, which I put down to the the quality of the filters. Right, every digital system has to have filters up at um, half the sample rate to make sure to, to prevent this side effect called aliasing. Come back to that in a second. Um, and all filters have a roll-off, right? You can't have a perfectly sharp filter. They all extend a little bit down in the frequency curve. 
Um, and if you have one at 20 kilohertz, it's quite possible that, that the, the, mm, the, the frequencies that get influenced by that filter might extend down to the kind of frequencies where we can hear it. If you push it up so that it's at 24 kilohertz, which is half of 48 kilohertz, which is a sampling rate, the effect of that is going to be, those effects are going to happen at a higher frequency. So they're going to be harder for us to hear if you can hear them at all, right? Okay. So that makes sense to me in theory, even though I don't believe I can hear stuff up at 20 kilohertz. Um, and I could hear a slight difference. I was pretty sure, I didn't try it. I was pretty sure I could have compensated for that difference with a little bit of tiny EQ on the 44.1 version. But, you know, that was a difference, I thought. But going up to 96... I couldn't tell the difference between 96 kilohertz and 48 kilohertz. Really? Now, it's just me um, on that system, on those three or four different sources that I had at the time right. that day, right? So that's not a scientific proof or anything. But I can hear a whole load of stuff, and I've proved to myself by testing myself blind <laughs> because I've run into problems with this stuff in the past. I've proved to myself that I can hear all kinds of really subtle stuff that lots of people say they can't hear. So I, whereas 96 versus 48, I couldn't hear. So I, my opinion is that the difference that a lot of people hear when they go up from 44, which is quite standard in a lot of time, time still, up to 96, I think they're hearing that tiny little extra bit you go from going to 48. No, I have to disagree with you because, and let me tell you why. I have a Native Instruments Audio Control 1, which is one of the first audio interfaces I bought, and it was capable of 192 sample rate. And I compared, I would compare like 96, 192, and 44, and 48. And major difference. Like, I could hear it easily. So on that piece of gear, definitely I could hear it. So. Okay. Did you test it for intermodulation distortion? No. <laughs> I mean, okay. not on purpose? No. Because I have no okay. idea what that is. Okay. Here's the problem. It's actually really hard to design a piece of gear that is perfectly linear when you play back these really high frequencies. Mm -hmm. So certainly at 96, but even if you go up to 192, especially when you go up to 192, if you could really easily hear a difference, my guess is you were actually hearing a flaw in your signal chain. Now, you don't need to get kind of upset. I'm not saying that your signal chain is crap. Um, it was. Because yeah. I have that same flaw using the headphone amplifier on my system here. Um, I can't really demonstrate this or explain it adequately on a podcast. So if anybody's interested in this, we'll put a link in the show notes, which will be at themasteringshow.com. Um, there's a blog post where people can go, and there are actually uh, three or four test files that people can download. And basically what you do is you download those files, play them back on your system with the output set to 96 kilohertz. If you hear anything when those files play, there is a problem with your system. Mm. It's not necessarily a big problem, but you shouldn't hear anything when those files play back. There shouldn't be anything in the audible bandwidth. Um, and a surprising number of converters fail this test. Ah. So quite aside from the fact that the converter you tested with may not have been equally good at playing back audio at those different sample rates, which is one reason you might have heard a difference, if you hear a big difference, because because it's not subtle. When if you play back these files and you can hear the problem, you hear quite loud sounds. You know they're really they're really audible. And if you imagine adding those kind of sounds into a music signal, it's very easy to 
to understand why high sample rates might sound different. Yeah. And the funny thing is they add this kind of slightly gritty, high-frequency, distorted quality. And actually, when you do that with music, it makes the music sound slightly brighter. And the effect that people expect when they go to higher sample rates is to hear things sound slightly brighter because they're expecting to hear more high frequencies. So it's it's very easy. I'm not saying you were fooling yourself. I'm just saying when I've done these tests, I don't hear it, hmm. except on gear that I know has this uh, flaw, I would say, or this weakness, this vulnerability. I see. So, yeah, unfortunately, just doing that test of playing yourself different sample rate files and hearing a difference doesn't prove that you can hear the stuff or that your gear is doing a good job. If you play these test files and they work, you hear no sound when you play the test files, then you do know that what you're hearing is real. Right. Um, and in that case, actually, I would love to hear those files. People would be welcome to drop me an email or a, contact me on Twitter and because and, I'm always interested to explore this stuff. You know, I'm, I know the theory and I know what my own tests have shown me and I have my own opinions. Um, and I know for a fact that a bunch of the top engineers in the industry still work at either 44 or 48, even though a bunch of the top engineers also work at 196 and 192. Right. But yeah, I would, I would love to hear some... It would be fascinating for me to have these uh, these things disproved, right? Because then it would show that actually the science doesn't tell us everything we need to know. And there's something else. I'm going to go on a little quick tangent on that which is when I get into these discussions, I pretty much guarantee when people hear this podcast, they will get upset. <laughs> um, they will think I'm either insulting their ears or I'm insulting the gear that they've poured their hard-earned cash into or I'm insulting their intelligence by telling them they're hearing things. Um, so if that's, And you're here to say you mean to do all those things purposely. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm just saying it's, in, it's inevitable. Uh, no, I don't want to upset. I know, I'm just kidding. It's well, actually, I can't. It's quite fun <laughs> to, it. to be controversial and annoy people. If I'm being completely honest, um, but I don't relish a deluge of emails. Um, and when they get upset and I don't back down, then they will start telling me why I must be wrong, and I will then go back and talk the theory to them and point them at you know. I mean, there's a fantastic video um, made by this guy Monty at ziff.org that demonstrates this stuff. Any of these things that people don't believe me saying, you know, anybody who thinks, no, you can definitely hear the digital stair steps in, in digital audio. It's, <clears throat> excuse me, it's exactly like a digital photograph. You need all of the, you know, extra bits. Uh, you can see and hear this stuff in his video. So we'll put the link to that in the show notes as well. Okay. But so once we kind of get over all of that and they're kind of like, okay, well, I haven't persuaded them that way. Then they start saying, oh, but maybe there's something else. You know, audio is this incredible thing you know who know maybe the science we don't fully understand what's happening and i can't say that's definitely not true right because i come from a scientific background and if i was just to say no you're flat out wrong that you can never say that right you know even einstein might be wrong we have to be open to that possibility um but what you do is you look at the evidence and the fact of the matter is we're not, I mean, I agree that sound is this almost mystical thing, right? It, it staggers me what we can perceive with our ears, what we can reproduce musically and, and by recording. And, you know, it, it staggers me that, you know, vinyl and speakers work at all. <laughs> it staggers me, you know, you know, I mean, you think about it, you've got a, 
you know, you've got these vibrations of the air molecules and you put up this microphone, which is two kind of little thin sheets of metal, maybe that makes electrons move in a wire and that travels down the wire. And then you can scratch that into a piece of plastic with a diamond needle, you know, and transfer it to stampers and press things and send those out. And then somebody plays it back with another little needle that's scratching in plastic and that wobbles and you amplify that signal. And then you play it out through a paper cone that's got a magnet coiled around a thing and it makes the air wobble in ways that sound really quite similar to the original thing. I mean, that's a miracle. Yeah, yeah. I agree <laughs> I, with you. I, I think. But the key point about that is right in the middle of that chain I just described, you're down to the motion of electrons in a wire. Yeah? Forget all the other stuff. In the middle of that chain, in the middle of every audio recording chain, is electrons moving in a wire. Okay. And electrons moving in a wire is something that science absolutely understands to a staggering level of accuracy you know i mean we can even you know we're doing experiments where we can look at individual electrons and where you can look at two electrons that are uh somehow joined together and you affect one and it affects the other one at a difference and you know all of these incredible you know you think about shooting electrons around the um the particle accelerator thing in cern in europe you know atom smashing machines all this kind of stuff and quantum mechanics, which is the, the scientific theory that makes computers work, describes the motion of electrons in a wire. We really do yeah. understand this stuff really well. So ignoring the entire rest of the chain, all the other bits are far less um, accurate than that thing. When we're talking about the ability of digital audio to reproduce analog audio, the analog audio is just electrons moving in a wire. It's not actually a musician in a room, you know? By the time it gets to that point, it's just electrons moving in a wire. And you can store the information about how those electrons move however you like. And if you do it accurately enough, you will reproduce the way that those electrons moved in that wire. And then you can reamplify it and make the sound again. So what I'm saying is everything else in the chain, the microphone, the player, the acoustics, the loudspeaker, the amplifiers, the valves, all of those things affect the sound far more than the format we store that signal on. Whether it be an analog tape, whether it be a piece of vinyl, whether it be a digital file, yeah? So actually, when people start saying, oh, there's something mystical we don't understand, I mean, I totally agree with that in terms of how we perceive sound when we're in a space. You know, there's all kinds of amazing things in terms of audio. There's, you heard of the cocktail party effect? That's the thing where you can figure out what somebody is saying, even though they're on the other side of a crowded room where a load of people are talking, like a cocktail party. Okay. Yeah, um, And that's because, to some extent, we lip read in that situation. And because our brains are amazing at guessing. Um, you know, it's the stuff that we can hear tiny little sounds in an incredibly noisy environment. Just, um, And that stuff doesn't work in the same way when you put a microphone in front of it. Putting a microphone in changes everything. Huh. And that's why we do all of this extra work. You know, if we could record the the actual perfect sound of being in a room, why not do that? Um, that's the kind of the theory of a lot of classical sound recording is to just get the best possible mics in the best possible place and record them as accurately as you possibly can. But even when you do that and you play it back through a set of speakers, it doesn't sound like it did when you were in the room there. Mm. Um, just because, well, I mean, it's kind of obvious. It's You've converted this thing that was movement of air molecules into something that was nothing like it. Yeah. Um, and that's the fun and the excitement for me of, of recording and mixing and mastering and all the rest of it is to get as close as you can to that illusion of being there in the room with the musicians. Um, 
but it doesn't have anything to do with the recording format or whether it's analog or digital or actually how many bits there are. Um, so little ranty tangent off. No, that's cool. So one other thing I want to say about the whole digital audio thing is just to go back to the bit depth. Um, I mentioned anti-aliasing filters, and I'm not going to get into a huge tangent about those, but those are one requirement of the digital audio chain that is needed for it to work properly. So if your sample frequency is 44.1, you have to have an effective anti-aliasing filter when you record and when you play back at roughly 20 kilohertz. Okay. If you're at 48, it has to be at 24. If you're at 96, it has to be at 48 and so on. So half the sample rate, you have to have this anti-aliasing filter. Okay. The other requirement is you have to have this thing called dither. And dither is one of the things that amazes me most about my um, journey as an online um, person talking about digital audio, because if you had told me five years ago that I would spend probably more time talking about dither than anything else, I would not have believed you because it's a really, uh, I won't say trivial, but it's its a—it's one, another one of these tiny little 1% differences, right? Um, it's just this tiny little bit of extra noise, digital noise that's, uh, well, I say digital, it sounds like, just sounds like hiss. And it's added right at the final stage of any kind of conversion of an audio file um, to make sure you don't get quantization error, which is a type of distortion that you can get. I'm not going to get into a huge amount of detail on it. The point is you need it for the digital system to work correctly. And the reason I'm mentioning it is because in a lot of very early digital audio systems, it wasn't used. Okay. Okay. And that's my theory about why digital audio got such a bad name. Yeah. Because, I mean, j just speaking from my own experience, in my career, I have mastered hundreds, if not thousands, of albums from directly from analog tape. You know, I've actually had the master tapes in my hands, played it on the machine, captured the audio, and worked from there. So got as close as I could to the original source. Okay. Um, I can tell you for a fact that some of those analog masters sound sublime they sound beautiful you know it's the most you know warm rich clear detailed open expansive sound you could possibly imagine some of them sound absolutely hideous it's harsh it's cold it's metallic it's brittle it's edgy it's gritty all of those negative and that's you know just another analog reel playing back on the same system and the same thing applies to digital audio. I have heard cold, clinical, hard, grainy, gritty sounding digital recordings, but I've also heard beautiful, warm, expansive, open, sweet, delicate, pure. I've made digital recordings like that myself, right. even at 16-bit, even at 44.1 kilohertz. Wow. Um, for me, it's nothing to do with the format, right? It's all about what you put on that format. The one exception is this whole business about you have to have anti-aliasing filters and you have to have dither properly implemented. So to use an extreme example, I'm sure you have heard and used 8-bit samples. Yes. Yeah. And they have this amazing kind of gritty, crunchy sound to them, right? Yeah. And lots of people kind of say to me, well, there you go. Look, I mean, just look at 8-bit samples. Look at how horrible they sound. You know, clearly going from 8-bits to 16-bits gives you a huge improvement in quality. 
The answer is yes, but that's because those crunchy, gritty, grainy 8-bit samples probably didn't have anti-aliasing filters because they were probably at low sample rates as well, and they probably didn't use dither. If they had proper anti-aliasing filters and they had dither, they still wouldn't sound as good as 16-bit, but the difference would not be gritty, grainy, crunchy, all that stuff. It would be they would have loads of hiss because the dither would be at a very high oh, level for an 8-bit signal relative to the audio and they would if they were at low sample rates like you know lots of those early 8-bit samples were kind of 22 kilohertz sample rates um so the anti-aliasing filter would have to be at 10 kilohertz if you put a low pass filter on at 10 kilohertz you will hear a big difference right you will lose lots of those high frequencies yeah. so a correctly sampled 8-bit sound will sound hissy and probably dull if it has a low sample rate as well what is underneath that hiss and what is there up to that limited frequency range will sound absolutely fine. Hmm. In fact, it will. if you took the same signal and nulled it against one recorded in 16 bits, so flip the polarity, put them together so that it, everything that's the same cancels out and you're left with the differences, the only differences should be the hiss. Really? It's pretty amazing. It is pretty amazing. It's this thing called the sampling theorem, which is what the whole of digital audio is based on. Um, now, I'm not saying that 8-bit sound is as good as 16-bit sound, right? Because clearly lots and lots of hiss is not good. Um, you could noise shape the dither, which is another thing that people have probably heard of, where you, you take that hiss that's applied to remove the quantization distortion, and you can basically say, I'm going to make it very high-frequency hiss, so it goes up into the area where our ears are less sensitive, and then in the range where we hear most of the music, you notice it less. So you can make it sound better that way. Um, but also, as you increase the bit depth, you can apply the dither at lower levels. So the hiss gets a lot quieter. So, you know, a 16-bit... Uh, so I can't remember the numbers, um, but an 8-bit sample is going to... You're probably going to listen to it, and it's going to go... Right. Whereas you listen to a 16-bit signal you're not going to hear that noise. It's down at like nine, minus 96 dBs or something. Okay. Um, and especially with modern music, the, the, the signal is right up there. So the, the benefits of increasing bit depth, going from 8-bit to 16-bit to 24-bit, is not to get more detail or more nuance or any of that stuff into the sound. It just makes the noise floor lower, huh. right? It just reduces the level of the dither that you have to apply. And the benefits of increasing the sample rate like I said, up to a point, they will help. You know, if you have, if you're using 22 kilohertz, which is too low, the sound has to be cut off at 10 kilohertz. We can easily hear sounds above 10 kilohertz, so we notice that something is missing. But if you step it up to 44.1 kilohertz or 48 kilohertz, you can increase the frequency where those filters, the anti-aliasing filters, operate up to 20 kilohertz or 24 kilohertz, or you can go even higher. And as soon as that gets beyond the point where we stop being able to hear the high frequencies, somewhere between 16 and 20 kilohertz, depending on your ears, you have all of the musical information you need. That's pretty wild. And just to recap the whole point of that, a lot of that early audio... See, here's a thing that lots of people don't know. When you cut vinyl, I'm getting ahead of myself, when you cut vinyl, you have to have a delay in the audio chain before you get to the cutting head. They used to do that with an analog tape loop back in the day. But as soon as digital came along, they started using digital delays. So a bunch of the 
80s vinyl, late 80s vinyl that everybody loves so much was cut through a digital delay and it was probably a 12-bit digital delay. Okay. So there's all these people going on about how important it is to have analog sources for vinyl and the rest of it, not realising that a lot of the vinyl they know and love has already been through a really low, quotes, resolution digital system. I see. Um, but yeah, that early digital gear, a lot of it was 8 or 12 bits to save money. And if it didn't have anti-aliasing filtering, if it didn't have dither correctly implemented, then you would start to hear problems with the signal. But those are not some kind of fundamental flaw in the way that digital audio works. They're basically uh, a limitation in the implementation of those early designs, right? Okay. It's kind of like, um, I don't know, not having good enough suspension in your car or not putting the right oil in the engine. You know, you're going to feel problems with the ride and eventually your engine is going to die. That's not because there's some kind of fundamental problem with the whole idea of building a car. It's just you didn't do a good job choosing the parts and the maintenance of the machine. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. I think I've probably finished ranting. That's cool. Um, That's very cool, man. I mean, so, so just recap. I think digital versus analog is a complete red herring. I mean, they do sound different, don't get me wrong. You know, if you push an analog console, um, saturation and stuff happens. Um, you get harmonic distortion. There is some noise added. There's some crosstalk in between channels. You know, I'm, it, it does sound different. Strictly speaking, in technical terms, it's inferior to a digital mixer, like the one, you know, that you have inside of a DAW. Um, but people like the sound of that. And that's absolutely fine and valid. Um, lots of people choose to either record through an analog desk into a computer or even use analog tape these days. Um, that's a valid creative choice, but it's not because there is a problem with digital audio. It's just because there is a quality or a flavor, which is something you said early on, you're absolutely right, that people like about the analog system they're using you know they like the way that analog tape saturates right or they like the way that this component or that component distorts and i mean the irony of it is that the the really great engineers who were working on that classic gear from the 70s and 80s couldn't wait for digital because of all the problems with analog you know right. when you record to analog tape you gradually lose high end because every time you run the tape the particles get a little thin layer of magnetic particles get wiped off um, tapes stretch. Um, Trevor Horn, who's a, a personal hero of mine, um, as a as a producer and an engineer, there's, I've actually got a video on my site of him talking about this thing that he calls the analog myth. And he uh, specifically chose SSL desks when he set up his studio because they had more top end than the Neve because he was obsessed with trying to get more top end because of everything that got lost in all of that analog gear. And maybe that's why people think that analog sounds warm. Not because it adds any kind of magical quality. It's just it doesn't have quite as much top. Huh. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, it's... Uh, and again, there's nothing wrong with that. If you were in a... I mean, I've used Neve and SSL and beautiful gear in my career. It sounds fantastic. I've got great results with it. But I don't think it's because of any kind of magic in there. It's just because it was great to gear that was well-designed. Right. You make good choices, you get good sound. Um, and I think the same thing applies. And I have talked to other professional mastering engineers um, about this and kind of quizzed them on 
these questions and pretty much all of them agree you know the they love the analog toys um that they have available to them but they're probably only the last five one percent of the equation if that you know the vast majority of like i said in earlier shows the vast majority of the the benefits of mastering are just getting the level right getting the uq right and making good choices i agree it makes sense and um that's why a lot of guys pros will use digital now and even though they liked the qualities about analog their workflows they don't have to deal with tape they're happy with the workflow they're happy with being able to recover settings on their and their digital workflows and they're willing to take that over analog so i mean if the sound difference was that much they wouldn't compromise but exactly and especially now as the you know in the early days of digital um they weren't trying to recreate the sound of those you know i mean classic analog gear sounds great um and it sounds great because of it was designed by clever people who were very focused on the music and were incredibly skilled at choosing the components and all the rest of it you know you shouldn't try and take away from that um digital was designed initially with a whole other set of criteria namely to to get the maximum possible accuracy right. of the reproduction chain right providing they implemented dither and anti-aliasing correctly it could achieve that um but yeah it didn't have any of those qualities right. like you said that that the analog stuff has so now we have better and better emulations you know who knows whether the waves or the T-Rex or the Universal Audio, whichever emulation it is of an 1176 compressor sounds most like the real thing, but who cares? If it sounds great and you've got those similar qualities and you can get a result that you're happy with... Then it sounds great. It sounds great. And, you know, move on, worry about the next thing. Yeah. Um, which leads me to... I said earlier on that I hated the term in the box. Yes. That's another uh, red herring, I think. People, you know... I, so I hate the term in the box because the very name of it suggests constraints and limitations, right? But, I mean, I've just been talking for half an hour about the fact that actually there are no constraints or limitations on digital audio. Um, you can, If you increase the specifications, you can record an audio signal to theoretically infinite quality using a digital system. It's not necessary because we can't hear sound to infinite quality. You know, our ears are bandwidth limited and right. can only resolve a certain amount of signal to noise ratio. But you could do if you wanted. There's not some kind of restriction or limitation on digital audio. In fact, kind of exactly the opposite. Um, so I kind of feel just giving it the name in the box puts a perception in people's mind, you know, that is misleading. I don't know. I, I think um, it means in a computer. I look at it as I think about it as the tower. It's in the tower. Oh, that's definitely what it means. But I think it has it it, it has suggests stuff over and above that okay. to people, um, which I think is you know. So I mean, I, I kind of you could you could say it's not in the box. It's in the infinite digital audio space. That would also be accurate. <laughs> say you know. I mean. So anyway, I mean, that's just a, a little pet peeve of yeah, mine. But I again, I think it's a red herring. I mean, yeah, the so I've uh, I've mastered a lot of stuff from analog reels. I've never done any serious recording to analog formats. When I started working, digital was the new thing. The I had an eight track, 20 bit digital recorder um, 
and we were very excited about it. Um, so, but but you're absolutely right. Engineers who have, I mean, a factor that I, I'd never considered. Leave the quality issues aside. This is something that um, comes up often when Bobby Ozinski is talking to people on his podcast. Um, he's interviewed, you know, tons of engineers. Some of them still prefer to work in analog. Some of them work quite happily in the infinite digital space. Um, <laughs> but yeah, a limitation that I'd never really considered. He's he's talking about just the fact that you know an analog reel, you have 20, 25 minutes of recording time. So if you're working with a band and you do three or four takes, they've just warmed up. They're just about to hit their stride. The song is five minutes long and you've only got four minutes and 15 seconds of tape left. So you have to wait for the tape to be spooled back, taken off, another one brought on, spooled out, or you have to have multiple reels of tape that are already wound back and ready to go. And by the time you've changed the tape over and all the rest of it, they've got bored and they're sitting there on their phones, you know, texting their girlfriends or whatever. Right. you know, they're just practical, like the whole recall issue, like the fact that you it takes hours to get a mix back up and it will never sound exactly the same as it did last time just because you can only reset the dials on an analog console to a certain level of accuracy. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's if you have analog toys at your disposal or you have the funds to get them, then they're lovely, you know. It's, they're a pleasure to, to use. Just, I mean, I personally always get a buzz just out of hitting fast forward and then stop on a on a decent analog tape deck <laughs> because just seeing that engineering you know it it like it starts and stops on a dime it's it's a beautiful thing to see spooling a tape is a satisfying tactile thing to do you know even the rituals cleaning the heads doing the lineup tones all the rest of it i love all of that stuff but it's not intrinsically better than a well engineered digital recording it's just different right um, just different and nobody i think should feel that they are limited by working in the infinite digital space i think i might make a habit of using this Uh-oh. phrase I'm, I'm liking it we might have another day infinite digital space day <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i'm not going to do another day <laughs> but um yeah so so that so there you go I, it's you know um well I'll pause now because I was about to give away the mastering maxim in advance. Did you have any other questions about the things I've been saying? Is there anything I have not been clear about? No, man, it was a good spot to end and uh, I'm ready for the maxim. Okay. So the maxim is don't get sidetracked by the red herrings. Um, You know, don't think, oh, I'm working in the infinite digital space. I can't possibly get that analog sound or achieve the results that XYZ does. I mean, this applies not just to mastering, but to any kind of audio recording. You can, I think you can get the results that you're looking for with a really low, in inverted commas, specification of gear these days. You know, I mean, the fact is that the recording quality that you can get from a $100 USB interface, $100 mic and a laptop these days is approaching the quality of recording that you would have got in a professional studio 20 or 30 years ago. Um, I find that personally fascinating. And I, I love that about the, the age we live in. I mm. look at, I don't look at laptops now as laptops. I look at them as mini recording studios and mm. I'll buy laptops when I don't have no actual like need for one, just to have another little recording studio in my house. Uh, that's how I view them. And uh, I think 
that power is just so fun. And I, I love taking advantage of that. I completely agree. And, you know, I mean, you, well, I, I just remember when I was a kid watching Star Trek and thinking how cool it would be to have a communicator. And now I have an iPhone. Right. Which actually does way more than a Star Trek communicator would have done. And, you, you know, you're absolutely right. You can have a recording studio in an iPhone. Um, yeah. You know, you can you can buy, I mean, the, the mic on an iPhone is not worth using, but, you, you know, you can ch- plug in a cheap little accessory to it so that you've got a reasonable mic going in and you can make decent multi-track recordings on a on a, you know a thing you can hold in your your hand Absolutely. it's incredible not just um, record it, it can play all the, the instruments and yeah you've got your midi sequencing effects the whole thing it's yeah it's staggering so don't feel I, I would hate for anybody to kind of feel resentful or imagine that that's putting some kind of limitation on what they can achieve you know i would say rejoice in that power and all the rest of it if you had the opportunity to go and work in an all analog incredibly expensive recording studio then enjoy the experience and and make the most of that but the fact that you don't have that at your fingertips at your disposal is not going to limit the results that you can achieve i don't think in any meaningful way no um i mean so there's a funny this is a little bit of a tangent but when i used to so when i was first working as a mastering engineer uh originally i was working from that the sources would come in on cds on dat tape on analog tape um, and it was all being played in real time. So there weren't. what I'm saying is we didn't even have a DAW. We didn't even have a digital audio workstation. And one of the studio, there were five studios at the place where I worked. One of them had, uh, it was a sound tools system then, which was the pre- precursor of Pro Tools. Yeah. So it was just a stereo digital audio uh, system that you could record these files with. Then this thing came along called Sadie, uh, which was a studio audio digital into uh, something um that was um that that eventually took over from uh this thing called sonic solutions in the mastering uh area um it was designed for the bbc to be used for editing which is the point of this little tangent and the editing on it i've still not found anything that's better for digital audio editing it was so fast and so intuitive for editing a stereo clip um in for for music and all the rest of it and when I was learning to use this system, when I finally got my hands on one, a few years after I'd been working there, um, I had to do a live album. And it was uh, The Band. It was a compilation over whatever their career was, like 20 years maybe. I had all of these different gigs, so I had to EQ all the tracks to get them to sound great next to each other, to work as an album. And then the client wanted them all cross-faded together so that it made a, a continuous sequence. Sure which is an incredible challenge because some of them were recorded in a little like jazz club kind of setting with maybe 10 or 20 people in the audience and they sounded like it. And some of them were recorded in stadiums with maybe 10, 20,000 people. Right. Getting a, a transition from a full-on audience kind of cheering into a small club atmosphere is a real challenge and I really enjoyed it. But because I was new to the whole thing, I would get my colleague to come in and kind of say, do you think this sounds okay? Do you think this works? And he would kind of listen and go, yeah, I think that's okay. And then he'd look at what I'd done on screen. And, you know, suddenly we had various different crossfade shapes, you know, and you could choose the in and out points of the crossfades between the different performances with incredible accuracy. You know, back in previously, you would have put a razor blade in and hoped for the best (laughs) in the analog tape world. But 
this new technology was giving us. And he'd go, oh, okay, let me, let me. And he'd sit down and he'd kind of fiddle around for 10 or 15 minutes and he'd come up with it and he'd go, there, listen to that. And I'd listen to it and I think, yeah, that sounds good as well. And his crossfades would be different lengths than mine and he'd have used different shapes. Were the differences that significant? I'm not convinced they were. He'd used kind of a completely different approach to achieve a result that was almost identical. I'm not convinced right. anybody listening to the final product would have noticed the difference between his choices and my choices. Right. And I just see the same thing happening over and over again. You know, there are people who use the same mic for everything and then EQ it heavily, depending on the singer. And there are people who have a mic locker of 20 mics and spend half an hour choosing the right mic and then use no EQ. Um, you know, there are people who only work on analog gear and people who only work on digital gear. And all of these people are successful. All of them get, and I'm, you know, when was the last time somebody kind of criticized a recording because of the way that it was recorded? You know, nobody cares about that. It's, it's about whether you nod your head. It's about whether it makes you laugh or it makes you cry or it makes you want to dance. Um, you know, all of those things are irrelevant. So the mastering maxim is just enjoy using whatever you have to get the results that you want. Um, and don't kind of worry about whether the other man's grass is greener or not. You know, just learn to get the best out of what you have um, and use it to get great results. And you can get great results with it. You absolutely can get great results with it. Yeah. yeah. So very cool, man. I love it. Good stuff. Great show. Full of, packed full of knowledge as usual. And um, hey, if anybody wants to contact us, head on over to the website at themasteringshow.com. Sign up for our hot list. It's our mailing list and uh, we send out cool stuff and we keep you abreast of when shows are coming out and such. And also we have contact information there. You can hit us up on that. And you can also listen to the shows and get all the show notes and all the links. It's uh, at themasteringshow.com. Absolutely. You can also get us on social media. I'm on Twitter at Ian Shepherd, P-H-E-R-D, uh, or on Facebook. Just search for me. You'll find me. Steve, where are you? I'm over at edmmr.com, and uh, we got four shows over there, mainly centered around electronic music, but it applies to the audio industry. Yep. And of course, you can subscribe to the show in iTunes uh, or wherever else you commonly find your podcasts. Um, and if you use those places, please take a minute to leave us a rating and a review to help spread the word about the show and get it to other people's attention. And if you know anybody who would like the show, please point them our way. Absolutely. Well, that's going to be it for today. Hope you guys enjoyed the show. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. <laughs>